Thanks for joining us for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs. Our series of family-run farm equipment manufacturers sponsored by Osmondson Manufacturing. We've got a record four execs mic'd up and gathered around the Vermeer family dining table today in our last official episode. So we're gonna jump right in. One thing to point out, make sure you hang in till the very end for an in-depth look at how Vermeer pulled together after a devastating tornado that without warning, destroyed 30% of its factory capacity in the summer of 2018. And how everyone rallied around Vermeer Strong to get 2,800 people working and productive again in just 30 days. I'm Mike Lesseter with Farm Equipment and Rural Lifestyle Dealer and uh, very excited to be in the Founders Home here on the Vermeer campus where Gary moved his family in in 1953 and Bob and Mary grew up in this home and we're sitting with the family today to talk about the, the history of Vermeer and their story as, as one of the largest family-run companies in the Midwest, including agriculture. So it's going to be a really good story. We're here just a couple days before Christmas with the three generations. This is the final interview that we have in the, in the series and one that we thought of when we put this whole idea together. So thank you for making the time at Christmas rush, the busy end year. Knowing it's been an unusual year with the tornado that hit last summer and all hands on deck to get everything running again. And thank you for this opportunity. This will be fun for me personally. So we've got the four family execs here at the dining room table, historic ranch home in Pella of the late Gary and Matilda Vermeer within walking distance of the Vermeer Manufacturing Campus. So I got the chance to see uh, each of your, your bedrooms here today, which was fun. But let's go around the table now so our listeners can recognize each of your voices. We'll start with you. Okay. Mindy Vandenbosch, I am a, the Manager of Distribution Development in the Forge Division, and I've been here for 10 years. Bob Vermeer, I'm Chair Emeritus, but I worked for the company for 40 years and I was CEO during part of that time, and then chair, and now I'm chair emeritus. Mary Vermeer Andringa, chair of the board, but also have worked in the business for about 36 years, including chief operating officer and CEO, and now chair. Jason Andringa, honored to serve as the CEO in the third generation of the Vermeer family. And I've been at Vermeer for 13 years and was in five different jobs at Vermeer before having the opportunity to move in the CEO role. Talk about the very earliest history with your father. When someone asks you, tell us how Vermeer got off the ground, how you would answer that question. Well, my father was always very innovative. If you have a chance to go through the museum, you'll see what his shop looked like initially. But basically, he was always looking for a way to uh, fulfill a need and started with some product that some neighbors were interested in. It really moved on from there to a variety of items in our history. That first product was a wagon hoist? Yes, right. Okay. And he basically uh, wanted to find an easier way of getting grain out, so he developed that. Yeah, and he initially built that for his own use. He and his father were doing corn picking for a number of neighbors during World War II. And again, they were trying to find a, a better way to get from one farm to the other quickly. And part of that was an easier way to unload the corn out of the wagon. So it was a mechanical wagon hoist. And then when he had neighbors start to, to say, oh, could you build one of those for me? He went to a blacksmith shop in Pella and actually tried to do a OEM arrangement with them for a while. 
that didn't really go, I don't think, as well as he thought it would. So in 1948 was when he decided to, to start his own manufacturing business with his cousin, Ralph Vermeer. Actually, he was a co-founder initially, and unfortunately, Ralph passed away after about the first decade of the business. But the two of them were the ones that really started the business. And he was, he was a farmer at that point, just had found an opportunity to make something He different. was a farmer, but he was always a tinkerer, too. So as Bob said, we have a piece of the shop that he worked in on his family farm, which is right across from Vermeer Corporation, and was always looking at better ways to do things. So one of my favorite pictures that's in the museum is the cab that he put on a John Deere tractor in 1939. So it was before he was married, while well, he was working at home, and there's, there was an article actually in the local paper, Palo Chronicle, that showed Gary Vermeer in the tractor with a cab in April. And it said when everybody else was on their tractor with purple cheeks and hands because it was so cold, Gary Vermeer was riding nicely along in his cab on his tractor. Mm -hmm. And I said to him once, I said, Dad, did other people have cabs on their tractors? And he said, no, nobody had cabs on yeah. tractors. You know why? I don't think anybody thought about it. Yeah, I don't think anybody <laughs> thought about it. Yeah, he would tinker for comfort. I mean, mm -hmm. we right. know yeah, that when we were in right. Canada, right. that he would tinker with things to make it more comfortable. Right. So, right. Whether it be the yeah. seats on the <laughs> on the boat, boat or, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and one thing, so I, I started working with our, our Fordish dealers in the last year, and I always like to tell our new dealers that what I think is exciting is a lot of times his first inventions after the wagon hoist and a few others are actually in our industrial side of the product, but a lot of them were because he was trying to make it easier on the farm. So at the end of the day, he still yeah. had the farm kind of in his background, in his mind all the time. And then those first inventions or second, third, fourth, whatever, were more of, hey, let's make it easier on the farm. And so those What would some of those be? Those his tiling things. machine, um, the stump cutter. Yep, really, really all mm -hmm. the entire business can trace its heritage back to the farm even though more than 80% of the business today is the industrial side of the business and less than 20% is the Ford side of the business, the entire industrial side of the business can trace its heritage back to innovations on the farm. So about 50% of the business traces its heritage back to PTO-driven tiling trenchers to um, drain low-lying farm fields. And then about 30% of the business traces its heritage back to the invention of the stump cutter, which was invented to clear land to be put into agriculture. And he always seemed to think by the river bottom land mm -hmm. at times, and yep. so it was needing some way to drain you know the water off that land. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so then the yeah the, tr the yep. original trencher kind of came from that. And that stump cutter story, there was kind of some serendipity in that mm -hmm. that one, as I understand it. So it it came from the idea came from a local area farmer who brought it to Vermeer. And they developed a prototype, and they had a, a prototype that they assumed would be most effective cutting forward and backward across the stump. And as the story goes, someone hit the wrong lever, and it swung side to side, and they realized it was five times more effective cutting a stump that way. And to this day, that is how a stump cutter works. It sweeps back and forth across the stump. So it's uh, quite interesting in the history of the company that the heritage of our industrial side of the business actually predates the invention of the round baler, which is the single most iconic invention in Vermeer's history. Regarding the round baler, my dad was out walking with a friend one morning who was putting up square bales and said there has to be a better way and basically decided he was going to sell his herd of cattle because he thought it was too much work. And from that, Dad went to engineering and had a gentleman called Arnie Mathis with a sixth grade education, but a brilliant person, 
and together they started developing the large round hay baler. And basically, uh, I started from here in 1974, but the baler started in uh, 71, 72. Correct. And in the 70s, uh, it's interesting because I think probably 75% of our sales mm -hmm. were from the baler production at that time. So that was a really exciting time. And you kind of ask about how we finance that. Basically, Dad required a $500 deposit on every baler. So that money all came in when the orders were placed. And those were the funds that helped finance basically all the production material that was needed for the baler. Uh, the business had been in existence for 23 years before the invention of the baler. And uh, my grandfather, their father, Mindy's grandfather, had experience from the Depression. And that always stuck with him. So the business was always financially conservatively operated. So, you know, really the, the business had a strong financial foundation to begin with. And then as Bob said, by expecting a deposit for every order, really it was well financed for the growth that the Baylor brought. But I'd say that one of the biggest common themes in the whole growth and new products at Vermeer has always been looking for an opportunity an opportunity to take waste out of a present system. Yeah, fix a process or a problem right. with a product. Right, with a, with a solution. And particularly dad was, Bob and I heard this lots and lots of times, and I think Jason and Mindy did too, you know, you don't go and just redo what somebody else has done. His premise, his thought, now today we, we have to continually enhance products, but his premise was um, design something new that, that's not out in the market now. So that large round veil story is, is amazing to me. I mean, it's a, there can't be all that many single revolutions like that one. Prior to your neighbor who he had had that conversation right. with, he probably needed four, four or five people to put up his hay. I remember that personally because uh, when I was growing up, we were expected to help in the summer. So he had one person driving the track. Well, first of all, you rake the hay, then the actual putting up the square bales, you had someone drive the tractor mm -hmm. that uh, made the square bales, then you had someone on the wagon who was stacking the bales. Then when that wagon was full, you took that wagon to where the barn was, and you took the bales off, put them in an elevator, and they went up in the elevator into the barn. So, and then and, you had someone in the barn, was right, in the and hand. that was always the worst job, because it was really hot. <laughs> so it was yeah. at least oh, four people. Out. Because see, that was, you know, people were still using the, the barns with the second level you know, where the hay was stored, because quite often they had cattle or livestock down below that, you know, over the years that has changed. But mm -hmm. certainly at that time, uh, you know, I still remember the days when, you know, they put up hay with the fork, you know, I mean, it was loose hay, you put a fork mm -hmm. in, yep. then you put it up and put it in the barn. That was very difficult to feed because it was all in each Loose, other. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a great story. What are your earliest memories of dad and the company. That I remember uh, sitting in this house and uh, I remember dad going out milking cows in the morning. We had two Holstein cows and he would go out and, and milk them. And in fact, I had one myself later on. Why? I do not know I ever did that. So I remember that and, and just, I think, uh, meals around the table. And I know that, you know, I think that when the company started, Mary and I would both go with him to work sometimes because he put a lot, you know, he wore many hats. And also, I remember really uh, when the company started some fun trips. The mm -hmm. fact that dad loved to fly, so we had a Bonanza, 
and we would go visit customers and the family would go along. So a lot of our vacation time was spent visiting customers. So I think the family and that plane was another great experience. I don't remember dad milking a cow. When I was growing up, Bob was the one milking the cow. <laughs> but um, I, I you know, definitely remember walking in plants with him. And it was the plant that we had on the west side of Pella. And it was usually, I remember going in the evenings, and so it would be after a meeting mm -hmm. or something, maybe it was after church, I don't remember. And we would go and I would walk with him through the plants and, you know, they were usually not that well lit at that point. And then I also had a fascination in the office with all the carbon paper. Um, yeah, I was sort of a teacher from well, way back. And so I would gather carbon paper that put in the wastebasket that wasn't going to be reused. But it was, you know, it was what they made multiple copies of at the time without a printer. And it would take some of those home and have a good time using those for whatever my projects were at home. But, um, I, and I also remember, um, as Bob did, those first 10 years of the business, we started a dealer organization for industrial at the end of that decade, in the, in the late 50s, 58, 59. So when we went on family trips, we, Dad was working through short line manufacturing reps. And so he would kind of go directly to customers. So I, one of my best memories was we went, flew to Alaska in 1960, and I remember sitting through a dinner with my mom and dad, and I'm not sure where Bob and Stan were. They were maybe off doing something more fun. And I was sitting uh, at, with a customer talking about a trencher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so not that dad brought work home a lot, but um, you know, we certainly remember the stories. I remember sitting at the kitchen table and dad coming home and saying, you know, we found this way to be able to go around a tree and spade it so that we can pick it up and transplant it. Just think about that. Mm -hmm. If you can have a tree in your yard that's already 10 inches in diameter, wouldn't that be great? And he, he was, got really excited about that. So, and then I remember him also when I was home from college talking about the round hay baler and throwing the fence post in. The, so the articulating kind of at the dinner table helped. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, and I think it was his excitement mm -hmm. over it too. Right. Something new. Right. You know, he was always excited about the something new and different and something that would make work easier. So when, when the two of you were growing up, how big was this company and the, the size of the plants and, and contrast well, it till today? I, I remember, I think that was kind of another fun memory. I remember having Christmas parties with the employees and that was about 100 people. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I was 10, 11, whatever I was, yeah. but I remember going to those Christmas parties and it was kind of like family. And the talent at those Christmas parties was basically employees' kids. I'll never forget, once they had a magician there, there was a secretary who was basically a relative of my dad, and they put her in something and cut her in half. And I just remember as a kid, I was just floored. We were actually often part of the entertainment as well. Between Bob and Stan and I, we sang and played instruments and you know, did Christmas carols or something. But there were other, other um, young people who did tap dancing and mm -hmm. a, variety of, a variety of talent, homegrown talent. 
So throughout the, the 60s, the employment and number of plants by the end of the 60s, what, what might it have been? Well, at the end of the 60s was when, like in the mid-60s, started building out here on the east side. And the story goes, and I heard this not too long ago, that dad wanted to expand on the west side. And so he tried to buy land from a farmer and that farmer jacked up the price pretty high and he was offended by that. That, that someone would try to take advantage of him and just, you know, jack the price. So he said, we're going to go find land somewhere else. And that's when he bought the farm, uh, which is right where the campus is today. And I do remember, and this was in early 70s, I think, you know, the, probably about the time you started, Bob, I mean, the company was, was 15 million in volume because right. we did have a buyer who wanted to buy us and we had a family meeting in this room when it was the living room. Bob and, and Stan were both married and, and I was not yet. It was like, maybe it was more like 60s. Talked about, you know, this company came to us and would like to buy us, what do you think? And we, a couple of us said, no, we, we think we might want to be involved in the business someday. So we decided not to sell. Yeah. I think probably in the early 70s, I think when I transitioned to Vermeer, that was 74. I would just say in 73, we were about 15 million in sales, but then we jumped to like 30 million in sales in uh, 1974. And basically, I'm going to say we had about 500 employees at that time. And Plant 2 was there by then, right? Because um, the pictures of the baler, I, I thought the Plant 2 was already built. I think 64 and 68 were when those two plants were okay. built. And fast forward to today, where it's about a billion dollar company. In mm -hmm. uh, total number of employees and square footage, um, uh, more than 3,200 employees, and uh, worldwide. Yeah, worldwide, we have about 2,800 that are based in Pella. And before the tornado, we had about uh, 1.5 million square feet of space. The tornado took 400,000 of that. So tr tremendous growth story here. In 74, 75 was when the, the round bale. Right. Invented in 71 and then, you know, just immense growth through the 70s. So, you know, we've, we've had periods of really, really strong growth. The, 70, the 70s being one of them with the round baler and then the 90s being the other, you know, real prominent one, which was horizontal directional drilling. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're the market share leader today in horizontal directional drilling and one, one of the first to jump on board with that technology and that really fueled our growth in the 90s. So those were two very significant growth periods and then um, post downturns of 2001-2004 and then also the 2009 downturn, we had significant periods of growth after both of those downturns. Yeah, we've just about doubled since 99. Yep. And that was the well, beginning of our lean journey. We've too. actually more than doubled. Well, right at about right at double, right at doubled. Yeah. Question for Mindy and Jason. So we we heard about their earliest memories. What were your earliest memories, and how they were different from Mary and Bob here? Sure. So I, I was born in 1975. Mm -hmm. So my first memories, kind of late 70s, early 80s, with regards to Vermeer, were, were definitely all around the Round Baylor. If you had asked me in the late 70s or early 80s, you know, what, is, what does Vermeer do, what do they make? Round balers, that would have been what I would have said. And I do remember growing up with four older cousins, two of whom were Bob's kids and uh, two of whom were my Uncle Stan's kids, and, uh, and then my sister and then two younger cousins. And I, my earliest memories 
with regards to Vermeer were our family pride with regards to the round baler. And we have classic pictures from those times when all eight of us were on a round bale of hay. That is when Vermeer was growing dramatically. Mm -hmm. At that point, Vermeer was already located here, right across the street from the founder's house. And my earliest memories, we had four production plants and we had covered storage, which is now our part center and our uh, clinic and pharmacy. So there was still a field in between plant four and my grandparents' house. And as time went on, we built more plants. And eventually when I was in college, we built the Global Pavilion, which is right across the street from my grandparents' house. So growing up, there was already in my mind, this significant company that made round balers. And then it just kept growing and it kind of gradually dawned on me that we make a lot more than round balers and we make trenchers and we make stump cutters and now we're involved in this new thing that's super exciting horizontal directional drilling and and uh, we make horizontal wood grinders and we make um, terrain levelers and it just sort of gradually dawned on me how broad the business was and how global it was. And when I was in college, I had the opportunity to make a couple trips to Russia with my mom to visit customers that were putting in significant natural gas infrastructure. And those were impactful trips for me to recognize the incredible impact that Vermeer machinery can have. The work Vermeer machinery does can make a significant impact on the lives of people a long ways away. And, it, and it's machines that came out of this factory that was doing that work. So those, those are some of my significant memories growing up with regards to Vermeer. My stories are a little different than that, I think. So for me growing up, one, I came a lot with my mom to work. So Jason was already in school and I was not in school yet. So I would get dropped off here at grandma's house. And a lot of my memories were riding the bike around. Um, she would go get baby pigs out of the out of the barn for me so I could play with them because I loved animals. I remember jumping around bales of hay. He'd have them all stacked up and I'd start at one end and you know hop them all back and forth. When it comes to Vermeer itself, again going I think to work with my mom, I remember when plant one, when you walked in the door, offices were to the right, but to the left was a completely open space and I would roller skate all through there. You know, so, and I kind of enjoyed, I walked around and I'd talk to everyone. Uh, when I got a little older, I'd ride the bus to Vermeer after school and I'd go get everyone's recycling because at the time there was one shredder <laughs> and so I'd go down and I'd shred everyone's papers and so I think for me it's a very different it was um, I you know, I'm pretty social so I'd go just kind of talk to everyone and see how everyone's doing my first time really being employed I worked in marketing um, as a high schooler but I think the one that to talk about kind of the impact was I came back here the summer before my senior year of college and I worked out in plant six in the factory and that's when we were really launching lean as a new way to manufacture mm -hmm. and i just what year was that, that? Uh, it was 99. 99 okay date me here <laughs> <laughs> but you know i think what i love there is i love the people i love the product i love being in manufacturing i love seeing our team members hard at work problem solving just kind of hearing more about the company and so that's kind of what got me excited i actually kind of changed my career path after that and went into manufacturing just because I, I just loved seeing product being built. So You learned how to weld? I learned how to weld that summer. I, not, I wasn't great. I built racks to put jigs and fixtures on for our machine shop. Mm -hmm. and, but yeah, I, I just had a lot, of, a lot of fun that summer. But again, also enjoyed, I mean, I, I 
used to file engineering prints for engineers. And so there's a handful of those people who are still around. So it's kind of fun to see them still as I'm, I'm back here on a day-to-day -day basis. So, But yeah, I mean, as far as grandma goes in this house, lots of memories you heard from Bob and Mary. She loved to be hospitable. She loved people to come over. She liked to cook for people, but also just, and Jason has them too, lots of memories of just getting into trouble around the farm kind of too, and uh, things we didn't get to do at our home. I have a lot of great memories of this mm -hmm. house and, yeah. and Me the too. farm. Yeah, I mean, uh, my mom, as she was you know, ramping up her career at Vermeer when we were young, we were here a lot, you know, mm -hmm. uh, weekends um, when she was traveling with my dad for, for something, or sometimes we'd stay here for, once we had switched schools and we were going to school in Pella, we'd stay here for a whole week. And, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I have, I have a lot of memories of this house and the proximity to Vermeer. A question about how you're all here today. We all have seen the statistics on family-run businesses. I'm second generation. I'm gonna learn from you today with free consulting, right? <laughs> so how are things set up that so well, or the vision that was had that to get to the third generation and have everybody working in, in, in a, keeping this a family-run business that's seen tremendous growth and innovation. We certainly went through some difficult times. And I think that we really felt that when we saw the third generation coming along, and some of them were in college already, uh, we thought we should work with a family firm that would help us through some of these difficulties. So in 89, we worked with a group out of Minneapolis, a family succession group, and basically they, along with us, and Mary was real involved in that also, and Mindy, and then my wife Lois, and a daughter-in-law were real involved working with this group, but also developing like a family employment policy, a family creed, and just a group of different documents, you know, how we keep moving forward. And also during that time, um, you know, as I mentioned, some of the third generation in college and some were still in junior high, but we went through a whole evaluation process. Each one met with someone from this firm and they had to put together a five-year plan. <laughs> and I remember very well my youngest daughter, who was in junior high, couldn't quite figure out what her five-year plan <laughs> would be. But I think that for some of those, like Jason, who is in high school and uh, some of the college students, uh, that was very valuable. So, and then we've rotated to other, um, you know, family succession type groups. But I really believe starting that was very important yeah. because there was a lot of emphasis on communication. And I think also the fact that we put, um, you know, some, uh, I, I guess, uh, rules and regulations mm -hmm. together on if you want to be involved in the business, what you needed to do uh, was helpful. Yeah, I think we put a lot, of, really started working on governance for the family mm -hmm. and realizing that you've got the, the family and you've got the business and, and you have shareholders and their shareholders and family aren't necessarily the same. So just a lot of processes we've been through and as Bob said, we started with a small group, um, we called it our family council and that evolved over the years where now what we have is an ownership council mm -hmm. and so Mindy's chair of the ownership council and she followed Bob's daughter who was the first chair of the ownership council but there's a lot of guidelines around that. How you serve, what the roles are, what, the, what you have to work on. And to be honest with you, the Family uh, Ownership Council deals with a lot of hard stuff. Hard stuff. Yep. I think another thing we've started more recently is the fact that we do have shareholder directors on the board. Mm -hmm. But if they want to be a shareholder director, uh, they have to go through an evaluation process. 
We put together a plan on areas of strengths plan. and yep. weaknesses, a development plan. And I think that's been valuable too, because I think for a period of time, uh, you know, there were some people who were on the board, family members, and there were really no requirements. And I think we're in a much better place right now whereby people have to apply and have to be approved. So the, the whole idea that you know, really we didn't want entitlement. Mm -hmm. So whether it's family members in the business or as Bob said, on the board as shareholder um, directors, it's not an entitlement that it, well, it's your turn now. And so Jason and Mindy can talk about the fact that they had to follow the family employment policy, which has certain requirements. It's not well, an entitlement. Yeah, and what I was gonna say, I think the most important thing back even on those early discussions was there was, this, there was expectation set. So to the point, it wasn't just, I get to show up here and, and you're gonna you know, let me be this role or let me be on the board. It was early on it, as a junior high for me, there was expectations of how you needed to get there. And if you wanted to put the work in, you could come back to Vermeer. So I think it was really good, or set, yeah, setting the expectations so we all kind of knew what we were getting into versus being surprised that, well, you, I didn't know I had to do this. And I think we also made, tried to make a real point, and that was part of the family constitution that we mm -hmm. did early on, is that we wanted, um, we wanted to support each person in the family wherever their passions were. Yeah. And if they had a true passion and they had the skill set to come into the business, that was great, and then we'd, we'd have a, a way to do that. But it was not expected that everybody had to come into the business either. So I think, you know, it's that balance. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you certainly want to keep the business open to non-family, mm -hmm. and that they have an incentive to come here and a desire to have a very important part in the development of the company and the future of it. And so, so I don't know if it's mentioned, but you know, we basically had, we had three of the third generation who uh, requirement was a college degree, work somewhere else and get an MBA. And I think uh, you know that kind of set the bar mm -hmm. if you want to be part of management in the future. Yeah, for me it was very helpful that we already had the family employment policy in place before I went to college. Um, I, I selected my major thinking that it would be a, a good major to eventually go back to work at Vermeer with. But right off the bat, I was already thinking, well, what would be an interesting thing to do for a period of time before I eventually go back to work for the company? And uh, you know, I, I'm just glad that that was my mental expectation from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I never thought, well, you know, maybe I'll go straight to the company because in my mind it wasn't an option. So I knew right from the beginning that I would do something else first. Mm -hmm. Mindy and Allison have done the same thing, that we all worked outside of the business for a period of time before coming to work for the business. Mm -hmm. So were there guidelines that said five years? Well, I, I thought when well, we were I, I first think there was that. a range, but I think yeah. most of you, you all did yeah. at least yeah. four. Yeah, I think yeah. we even went to the fact that when they worked for another company, we would like to see them have had a promotion right. there, right. Uh, possibly supervise right. other people. Mm -hmm. So I mean, we went to the extent that you know when they came to Vermeer, um, you know they they would be respected by people who worked here uh, with the background they had prior yes. to coming to Vermeer Corp. Mm -hmm. Very good point. And, and you, came, you walked into the organization on that first day accomplished, confident, ready to go. This wasn't just a, a boss's kid yeah. scenario. Yeah, and, and at the same time, um, you know, we, I can say from my own case, I think it's for you as well, that very first summer I did a lot of um, Kaizen work and support and um, 
I had worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the NASA Center for Robotic Space Exploration, and uh, I, I do remember thinking, and you know, I'm, I'm glad I had this experience. I remember thinking that first summer, as I was at one point, you know, um, rearranging all these, you know, dirty, greasy parts <laughs> as as part of setting up our model line for. Um, brush chippers, we had all these parts that we had to resort. And uh, at times I was, you know, painting lines as we were, you know, rearranging things in plant three. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, you know, just a few months ago, I was designing spacecraft. Yeah. And, you know, now, you know, here I am filthy and it's it's the summer, so it was hot, kind of like Bob's story. And, and uh, I thought, you know, I'm glad that this is how we do it, that we bring us in into jobs that, um, you know, where we can build respect within the organization. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's been a good process that we've had in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, same thing. I mean, I think for me, that one summer of doing lean, um, I think I had the same thing. I loved being on Kaizen events with everyone on the floor. And it was, I typically didn't tell them my last name. You know, I'd wear my badge <laughs> down on my jeans and so they didn't know my last name. And um, I loved that, seeing the realness before yeah. they realized you know, I'd hear people say, I can't believe you put Mary's daughter out there welding. But I, I think that's one thing I appreciate about Vermeer. I feel like everyone's always treated us, whether it's because of the process of us coming here and, and the jobs we've taken, but I feel, you know, respected. I don't feel like there's people who are telling you something just because of who you are. I think mm -hmm. they're, they're pretty real, and I appreciate that mm -hmm. about the employees. Mm -hmm. And they see you rolling up your sleeves right. and getting after mm -hmm. it too, right? Yep. And I think, uh, humbly, yep. Mary and I both here that uh, we've done a good job of raising the third generation <laughs> that yep. was involved in yeah. the company. So, I mean, the fact that um, they're not looking at being entitled, they're working hard, probably as hard or harder than anyone else, and uh, people in the company and outside the company really respect that. I wanted to go back to the ownership council a little bit. Um, so as Mary talked about, you know, we had a family council for a while, and as we pulled, you know, we have over 70 shareholders, and that usually shocks people. So as we pulled all these shareholders back into kind of communication, that's when the ownership council kind of started. And so our ownership council is actually eight individuals. And you know, we have talked a lot about my grandpa's brother, Harry, was also um, involved in the business for a while. So he's got his descendants and they're part of the shareholder group. And so the, the ownership council is eight of us um, and we're the representative body to voice our concerns and have conversations with the board. And so we really tried hard not to have we don't want every shareholder calling Jason with complaints. Um, he'd take the call or Bob and Mary at the time, but we want to have a, a communication flow. But then it also gets a lot of people involved. So on the ownership council, I'm the only one who works in the business day to day. But the rest of them are seeing what's happening. They have a voice. They feel that um, you know they're a shareholder engaged in the conversations. And so I think that's been really beneficial too. And we've got an education group, which Bob's daughter leads. and. Uh, really trying to already think of that next generation. Mm -hmm. So our fourth generation is 22, right. see 22, down to maybe a year and a half. And so there's a lot of focus on how do we get that next generation excited? Um, you know, the, the stats go down to 10% to get from the third to the fourth. And so we need to continue focusing on showing them the pride and the excitement. And especially as we give more diversity and um, geographical diversity from our shareholder group. You know, we'd love to get a fourth generation who grew up in a different state to come back and work at Vermeer. Mm -hmm. 
to some of the points that have made earlier, you know, even though we have had challenges and undoubtedly will have challenges within the family side of the business, really the passion and the commitment to the company is ubiquitous and is solid. Mm -hmm. So we, we do have a shareholder agreement. Um, and in that shareholder agreement, you know, people can sell stock if they want to. And there has just been zero interest from anybody to sell their stock. The passion and the commitment to the company is mm -hmm. completely solid, which is you know pretty tremendous. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. and I think it's important too that we've got as we talked about some of these documents. I mean, we have a, a Vermeer family constitution, which is kind of our our leading uh, values and guide and mission statement and that sort of thing. But in there, we talk about how um, it's it's our focus is on the business first, and then we come second. Um, mm -hmm. Not in a bad way, but just, you know, there's a 3,200 employees who rely on this business. And so at the end of the day, I think that's also kept us, again, is that expectations. You know, we know that we're keeping the business um, focused on the business. And we try really hard to keep the family side of things, you know, focused on that ownership council family side. And so we can keep yeah. the business going forward. But again, to the point, I mean, every shareholder stands behind that constitution. Um, I think our our family office person of the day said our constitution's almost 100 pages now, so we keep adding more guidelines and processes and policies to it. But again, then it kind of helps set the rule book, so everyone knows what they're getting into in a sense of as being a part of the family. Well, and I think basically, you know, going through the whole tornado and the tremendous leadership that Jason <laughs> and Mary and the team gave at that time, we just realized once again for those of us living here how important Vermeer is to so many employees in their lives. Because people lost cars, people, you know, uh, live from paycheck to paycheck. And, and I think for me personally, that just um, really, I think, invigorated me realizing, I've heard that third generation say, we celebrated 70 years, but we want to go to 100. Mm -hmm. And I think, good for you, because I may not be around, but uh, <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> I just feel that uh, what we went through, just for me, made us realize even more how important this company is to our employees and the community. And we do, um, this may be going a different direction, but we do have a lot of added benefits for people, whether it be our medical clinic, which is on the mile, at least these are for the Powell people, we realize this is not in, at every location, a pharmacy, uh, right north of this founder's home is the Early Learning Center, which Mindy helped get started, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal educational um, opportunity for um, children and grandchildren of our team members with great curriculum and fantastic atmosphere. And we've had, we now have four chaplains and they're chaplains and Bob got this program started to, to walk alongside with people through financial, marriage, family, crisis, you know, just to have someone to talk to sometimes. And it's all these things are run by third party groups, so it's it separates, you know, so we're not big brother watching everything going on, but we just know that a person comes to work with a whole lot of attributes and if we can help them, whether it's from a physical standpoint or from childcare or from uh, any kind of just soul kind of spiritual aspect, that that we've got we've got sort of the uh, ability to do that mm -hmm. i was going to ask about principles of the company and i'm also impressed by how uh, evident the faith is here and a lot of companies do not go down that path today or at least it seems so to me 
Well, maybe I'll just mention that um, when Bob and I and our, our other brother Stan was involved in business also for a while, we, uh, my dad had never wanted to do goals, goal setting. He, <laughs> he always felt, I think he always felt if you had a long-term goal and you didn't make it, then you're, it was kind of like a failure. Although he certainly had mental goals, you know, short-term goals all the time for his own life and for the company. But we went through and started putting goals down and then we realized some of them really weren't goals. They were sort of boundaries, they were values. Um, for instance, we've never really had any long-term debt. Uh, we've always been very proactive since the early days in promoting from within, wherever we could, you know, helping people use their skills and find new opportunities at Vermeer. And so we started realizing that some of those were more values. And meanwhile, I was reading a book about Lee Iacocca and it talked about uh, focusing on people, product, to profit. And I thought, you know, that's really kind of what a lot of these boundaries are around on the people part, requiring excellence in our product, putting money back into the business to be able to finance it. And I thought, you know, if we put principles with that, then principles which for us are biblically based, um, then that really would say who we are, kind of who are, what our values are. And I believe, and I just started talking about that and would write some articles for the power line and would always run those by uh, Bob and say, is, do you agree? Is this kind of what, what we're all about? And that's how our 4P philosophy started. And it was interesting when we rolled out a brand promise about, what, six, seven years ago, and later on went to check with people if they knew what the brand promise was, most of them said the four piece, mm -hmm. because that's what they knew, because we'd been talking, we'd all been talking about that. And that's part of our constitution too, by yep. the way, that um, the everybody kind of buys right? into yep. that. And and when we go to shareholders and say, what's what are the most important things we have to make sure we keep doing, it's adhering mm -hmm. to the four P's. Doesn't Can you mean restate those? Sure. It's, um, we talk about trying to manage the business by principles, which for us are biblically based, and those principles have to do with people, where we believe people are um, uh, yeah, it need, need, uh, uniquely created, and we just want to help them be the very best they can be, giving them opportunities at Vermeer, also sharing the first part of profit with, with people. On product, we talk about excellence, innovation, and quality in our product, and that we're, we don't um, settle for um, you know a product that that's not to the Vermeer standard and and believe me we, we continually work on all these all the time we're never ever there and then on the profit piece it's really from us our standpoint not only do we know that if you don't have some profit you're not going to have any sustainable business but for us it's always been reinvesting profit back in the business to really finance our growth and to be financially stable so those are the four pieces. And, and that's, I think, one of those key issues between generations that, I, that we've heard or read that it's, it's not putting the adequate money back into the business for growth, that at some point a generation says, well, we're just going to take that. And then that's where the company starts to, to fail. So I think, and that's a, one that's been kind of instilled in all of us and will instill into the fourth generation of, you know, making sure we continue that, that focus mm -hmm. of profit back in the company. Right. And I think just going back to uh, the chaplains and how that kind of evolved, you know, I remember 20 years ago working for the company and uh, talking to supervisors and they were talking about how, you know, I have to be a dad to this employee because they're going through a variety of things and I just really don't know, I'm not trained to do that. And then we started working uh, with an outside firm who had some psychologists and that was helpful. 
but I think really that evolved eventually to the chaplains because there's a lot of dysfunction out there mm -hmm. in society. I think you're all very much aware of that. And for some employees, really, probably the most stable thing in their life is their job. So, and, uh, you know, the chaplains walk alongside these people, as mentioned earlier. And also, if there are people that need more counseling, they can also um, help them uh, in that area also by referring them. Before we get back to the Vermeer family in just a moment, a quick word about our sponsor, Osmondson Manufacturing. Another Iowa success story, Osmondson's family history dates all the way back to 1903. You can visit them at www.osmondson.com. And now to open up the second part of the podcast, you'll hear about the new zero-turn self-propelled baler that wowed a lot of folks at the 2018 farm shows. A product with really no rival in a highly niche segment of hay production, it's a story about eyes wide open innovation. Vermeer hopes to capture just a little that disruptor type magic that Gary found with his large round baler back in the day and demonstrates the third generation certainly isn't slowing down either. And also stick around for a special bonus session delving into how Vermeer responded to the chaos, confusion and devastation that ironically will be forever remembered as part of their 70th anniversary event in the summer of 2018. The newest innovation that has come out of here, the self-propelled baler, can you put that into context for me on how important, if you were looking at your top five greatest product innovations ever, where, where would that fall in, in some context on that? I think, you know, to this day in our 71-year history, the invention of the round baler continues to be number one. And, and then, you know, where you slot some other innovations in there, but on the forward side of the business, I would say the zero-turn self-propelled baler is number two. The ZR5 is the second most significant innovation on the forward side of the business in the history of the company. And um, just a, a creative person within the company who came up with that idea. And because of our heritage of innovation, um, we re-resourced you know, re that project, um, a team and the resources to do it. And you know, every step of the way, we've been surprised in a positive way by what that machine has been able to do, the enthusiasm for it, and we have now the first five machines out in customers' hands and are gonna be ramping up production next year, but the machine is really exceeding expectations. It is able to do approximately the same amount of work as two tractors and two balers, um, and that is the type of um, productivity improvement mm -hmm. that we were hoping to achieve with the machine and it's just extremely fun to operate mm -hmm. so you know not only is it incredibly productive but I think I think it's going to be relatively easier for farmers to be able to get the labor to operate a machine like this as opposed to get two people to run, you know, two balers and two tractors. We've got five machines in customers' hands already. We were completely ready to support them if there were quality issues, et cetera. And of course we've had some, but it's been a lot less than what we were prepared for. And so, you know, it, it is just exceeding our customers' expectations already with regards to productivity and, and quality. And uh, we look forward to ramping production up next year. Yeah, and I'd say not even just the, the productivity gains, which are huge. You know, one of the comments is, too, when I get out of it, I don't feel like I bailed all day. 
you know, I, I'm it's, I'm comfortable in there. Yeah. The the suspension's amazing, and just the the cameras and not having to turn. But I've bailed a couple times with the ZR5, so I'm jaded yeah. now into what this mm -hmm. is. Yeah. But those who do this, back, you know, you? for for <laughs> yeah, those who do this, you know, all day long for a month or for weeks on end, um, that comfort level and to the point yeah. getting someone to be able to jump in that seat and bail yeah. is going to be a whole different story than trying to get someone to the traditional tractor baler route. So yeah. it's What's been exciting. And some of the engineers and people have been very accommodating to family because I know <laughs> my grandchildren, uh, fourth generation, yep. uh, rode in it and basically bailed a bale and he was only nine years old. So. <laughs> it's child labor, yeah. Bob, but that's okay. Yeah. Well, at least it was fun. Maybe you want to yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. it is. It's, you know, it's, I think it's one of those disruptors again. It's turning yeah. heads. It's getting the attention. Um, uh, have some exciting things, hopefully, that we can push out this summer to get more people seeing the product. We've yeah. got the space where we're going to manufacture. Yep. Yep. We've got that cleared yep. out, ready to go. Get yep. the excitement yeah. now with the yeah. you know, post-tornado. So that's always my question. I hope we have the yeah. line ready to go. Mm -hmm. I hope we know we're building and, and yeah. we do now. So because of the thing. location we were originally going to build it ended up being taken over for yeah. another more immediate need for production yeah. um, but we were able to, to build the five ZR5s kind of in an engineering bay which is you know one of many examples of, of us you know putting what I say the big V hat on to make the right decisions for the business and as Mary said we've now cleared out additional space and completely reoriented it so that we will have production space for the ZR5. But as Bob said, you know, it's it's a machine which when a when a nine-year-old can get in a machine and operate it easily mm -hmm. and effectively, that that just tells you how incredibly easy and comfortable this machine is going to be to operate. Numbers are still going to be relatively small next year. Yes. What, we had five in 2018. What might what might be 2019? Two, three dozen okay. is is possible the next year, and then we'll see where the market goes from there. So you know, certainly small in the context of um, pull type balers, which of course we always anticipate will be the bigger share of the volume. But the fact of the matter is, for significant custom balers doing multiple thousand bales, um, this is going to be a very compelling machine right off the bat. Mm -hmm. One that's going to make sense from an ROA. ROI perspective. So um, it's it's very exciting and we, we just look forward to seeing how the market draws it out into the market. From the perspective of, of one like me, the big story is the innovation mm -hmm. process and, and what that must say, I think about a, a, a dealer or a customer, uh, the story of the innovation and the yeah. skunk works model yeah. that, mm -hmm. that put it mm -hmm. together is remarkable. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah, as we continually look for dealerships to sell our products across North America, that is one where they'll come in and say, well, I don't have that ability in my area because of the five by six bail, but Vermeer's innovative, they're investing back in product. And so it just gets them excited about being a part of the Vermeer dealership team because of the fact that we're continually innovating and trying to you know, move the product line. So I think it's exciting just that, yeah, the investment to put back in. Absolutely, and you know, obviously we, we compete with uh, you know, the, the ag goliaths when it comes to agriculture and, and forage, but for being the inventor of the round baler in 1971, it's still this day, you know, we are the ones that came out with the ZR5, the first in the world, zero churn, self-propelled baler. So yeah, we, we continue to be very proud of our focus on that part of agriculture and therefore the innovation that we can uniquely bring to the part of agriculture that we serve. 
want to talk about lean. And, and I think the very first time I heard you speak and, and met you, Mary, was on a, in a lean principle talk. And you're very much, your organization is very much viewed as a champion, a leader in lean manufacturing. And tell us about that initiative, when it started, and, and what sure. you remember about getting that. Well, goal. there's always more to do on that, too. <clears throat> well, Bob and I went through several board meetings in the mid 90s with one of our independent directors who kept saying to us, you cannot just keep building buildings and adding machine shop and adding people. You have got to understand what Kaizen's about. And so actually both Bob and I went over to um, Han Corporation in Muscatine and he you know, started to explain to us waste, you know, how you identify waste and flow and those sorts of things. And, and then um, he was helpful in um, setting up opportunities for some of our key leaders to go be on a Kaizen in different other plants. So that was you know, the investigation of how can this work for us. But right across town is Pella Corporation. And they had been on the lean journey for a number of years already, also influenced by the Han Corporation. And so I remember going over there with, with dad actually. And, um, the chief um, operating officer at the time, who later became CEO, Mel Hot, took us through a walk down the line and, and talked about you know putting processes together and flow. But then what really made an impression on me is he went then to a whiteboard and he said, you know, when we're manufacturing, we're adding value for two minutes here. And then the product sits or it moves Mm -hmm. and that's all waste and then we add another little bit of value added and then it sits or it moves and that's non-value added and it was all the white space that he said that's what you go after in continuous improvement so um, we as a leadership team decided we needed to pursue this and we actually brought in a consulting uh, company which got us started and then we went to the, the same consulting company that Pellicorp was using TBM and I also, at about the time, went to an Inc. 500 um, meeting down in Arizona, and I sat next to Art Byrne, who's one of the gurus in continuous improvement. I love that guy. And he said to me, Mary, if you're serious about this, you've got to be on a Kaizen event once a month. You've got to be on take one week a month, and you've got to be on a Kaizen event, because he said, you will learn more about the strengths and the weaknesses of your people, your product, and your processes by being on events on the floor, out of your office, than anything you can do. And um, I took that very seriously. I went back and said to Bob, okay, I think I need to just make this a priority for me as chief operating officer and just get on a lot of events. And you know, he kind of thought, how in the heck am I gonna do that? I mean, I actually meet customers too and talk to dealers and do other things. But I was on one, on the average of one every other month for the first two years. And the first, very first week we kind of rolled it out, Bob was on a hay baler event and I was on a stump grinder event and I know you were on at least six that first year too. Mm -hmm. Virtually everybody who had anything to do with operations was on at least six events. So we, we did the full force of getting people to understand. Um, and I think you know what was great is our CFO still today will be on an event. And he made sure all of his team were on events. And, and, and finance people love it because hmm. it is all about great metrics, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, and understanding the Cost metrics. It, it is, and and we had we had consultants who helped us uh, realize that at first we really weren't seeing it hit the bottom line, but we definitely saw the importance on the balance sheet because we almost immediately within the first year and a half 
reduced work in process by 50%. That's a lot of inventory that is moving instead of sitting. Mm -hmm. And that makes a huge difference. And so one of the things we did early on is we, after two years, we didn't really see a whole lot more for the bonus for people, but we gave everybody an, a quote inventory day because we had all helped reduce inventory by being involved in, in uh, lean and continuous improvement processes. And that hit home with a lot of people. A lot of people said, oh, okay, so that's what kind of this is about. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think we, I think we turned some minds, and we also worked really hard, and we're doing it again now, to get people on an event because it's just such a great training opportunity to, to identify waste every day, and no matter what you do, and it's business process, it's manufacturing, it's out in our dealers. We've, we've expanded, and most all of our industrial dealers um, and many of them have a, a CI person on their staff that works continuous mm -hmm. improvement. They look at their payables, they look at their receivables, they look at their service techs, they look at their trucks that go out to customers and how can they have workplace organization in all those areas, how, they can, how can they find what they need when they need it. We will often say if you're looking for anything, a file, something in your computer or uh, something on the shop floor or in a service bay, for more than 15 seconds, you have opportunity for workplace organization. So, so we're, we've all been involved. We've yeah. all been involved in it and, and are very supportive. And a great a joy for me is to see that we are now getting back into the regular cadence of good Kaizans uh, at post-tornado with Friday report outs. And uh, one of the lines that was moved from one of the demolished plants to plant one just this week from a Kaizen last week has gone from two machines a day to three with the same people in the same hours. That's the power of Kaizen. And I think too what I like about lean manufacturing and Kaizen in general is it's, it's typically something very frustrating that is the waste. And so what I found is you know you got to get your team members excited about making change because change is hard but if it makes their day easier or their job easier or their life better they typically then get on board and even like in a business process it's Oh, I always hate you know running this report. Well, do we have to run the report? How do we run it differently? What information is used in there? And so it's challenging them to also own the change, and then it typically gets the buy-in mm -hmm. a little bit better. So I think that's I know you, yeah. it was a struggle at first yeah. with change management uh, back yeah. in the '90s, early 2000s. But I think that's what's exciting now is kind of empowering our people to own where they see opportunity because they see it if they if they're working every day. In that world so and in post tornado too that it's been fun some several of the people that i've been on kaizen events with when i've walked through the plant will tell me how they're rearranging the shelving or they're how are they rearranging where all the parts are that they have to pull for uh for a line by what's what do they pull 80 percent of the time and where is that located because their mind is thinking about how to make the, the work easier and take out the waste usually conclude an interview like this about talking about the the future of the company. And I recently learned about Yellow Iron <laughs> Academy and your awareness of birth rates and labor that will be needed in manufacturing and agriculture all the way around. I would, would like to talk about your view of the next generation workforce and what you are doing today with very, very young people to try to meet that. Yeah, so really, um, this was seven years ago now because my daughter's six and it's opened right around the time she was born. We had heard for years from our employees, mainly that it was hard to get their child to a childcare before they started work. And our plant, some of our plants started about 545. And so that was kind of one of the first things that hit us. 
But then we also got excited about the yellow iron, which is really focused around a lot of STEM. So they focus on math, they, they focus on you know, some engineering stuff, um, language, get kids moving and thinking differently. And so what I think has been exciting too is we've partnered a lot with our engineers to go over at times and teach the kids some engineering things or help them draw up something. Um, and so I think it's been a neat to kind of align the two uh, together. As far as you know, the, the growth of where our labor is going, I think we definitely see mm -hmm. the need for more skilled labor. Yeah, right, um, and right. and especially in our area, I think all over probably the United States. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Yellow Iron's been an awesome thing. I think it's been a cool way for parents to kind of tie in a little bit more with their kids. And um, the other proximity was the kind of the big thing too of having your child down the street versus maybe in the, a different community. But we, we've been work investing in the talent pipeline for mm -hmm. a number of years. So not only do we do like have 500 courses available for our own team members, but we've been for the last five years now, this year we had to do something a little different, inviting students in, sixth and ninth graders, to see what manufacturing is all about. And we'll have 30 to 35 hands-on activities and we do a pre and a post test. So when they do the weld simulator, the HDD simulator, or currency tables, there's activities for those five or six kids at a table at a time. And we ask them if they're interested in a, in a manufacturing career. And at the beginning, we had 39% say yes, but when they left, 70% said yes. Mm -hmm. So it's expanding the perception of what manufacturing is today and understanding that we've got a global aspect. I mean, I had a mother say, oh, I really want my son to go into technology. I said, we have technology all over the place. Every part of manufacturing has technology in it. And then we've, so we've done a lot with that. We've, we have Wintram students who come from one of the high schools, about 12 of them for seven days in January, and they do a, almost a shadowing. And I, I loved one of the students when he said, I, he followed a programmer for a whole week, and he said, I actually saw a real world application for algebra. I'd hmm. never seen that before. <laughs> And uh, we bring in teachers, K through 12 teachers. We've had over 70 teachers come in for a two to three week experience learning everything about manufacturing. One teacher said, I was a manufacturing snob when I came and I never encouraged any of my students to go into manufacturing. Now I'm reformed. And mm -hmm. I encourage students to think about the great opportunities in yeah. manufacturing. A lot of our team, Jason just spoke to a whole high school about the opportunities in manufacturing. Our team goes out and speaks about this. And then we have the traditional things, which Bob started many years ago, scholarships for sons and daughters. We give out, what, 35 to 40. Yeah, right. uh, we'll have uh, this next summer, we'll have again 45 to 50 inter uh, summer interns. So we do a lot for the talent pipeline, including being very active with our own building in the research center at Iowa State, where we are able to work with co-ops and with uh, part-time students who work for us for 10 to 20 hours a week, but they're also still students. So, because it is difficult, and it's difficult all over the country. Actually, it's difficult around the world to find the skilled workforce that we need. So we've got to we've got to tell our story about manufacturing. We've got to tell our story about Vermeer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're taking it into your own hands to solve right. it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to the point, it's the manufacturing days that she was talking about where kids from the local schools come. And I think what's exciting there, too, is it's not what they think of as a mm -hmm. dirty manufacturing environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's people who are programmers out there. There are people who are doing stuff with right. some of our automation, which is really neat. And as well as the people right. who are still assembling and welding and that sort of thing. But it's at the end of the day, it's a good career. Mm -hmm. And sure. so I think it's just, again, a lightning 
them of the importance of, yeah. of what our employees do every day. Yeah, the last time with all the 35 activities, there was a placard that said, what kind of education do, would you need for this engineering tech job or a project engineer or a welder? And then how many hours of work does it take to buy an iPhone? So trying to put it into monetary, yeah. the fact that these are great jobs. Good. Applaud you on what you're doing there. That's amazing. Obviously, uh, you know, try, trying to develop the workforce, but you yeah. know, I, I think Vermeer has a, a very bright future. And Bob talked about the fact that we, as third generation and fourth generation shareholders, um, we've been in existence for 71 years, and uh, it is our strong desire to go through the 100-year mark mm -hmm. 29 years from now. So um, that's just one of the advantages of being a privately held company. We can think about and strategize for being around 29 years from now. You know, public companies can't do it the same way that a privately held company can. Our markets are strong. We are gonna take this tornado opportunity to rebuild better and stronger than what we were before. We have uh, good insurance coverage for what happened to us. We're a financially strong company, and so we're gonna take the opportunity to rebuild better and stronger than ever. Our first offensive announcement after the tornado was that we're gonna build a new facility called Shop 48, and that is where we're gonna bring all of our engineering, um, technical people, and prototype build back on site into one centralized location. So that's gonna allow us to continue to leverage our number one core competency, our number one brand pillar, which is designing and manufacturing innovative products for niche markets. Our commitment is strong mm -hmm. and um, we feel very confident that we're gonna to continue to grow and succeed into the future. And I think another thing is that we are, um, this is maybe more industrial focused, but we're really expanding globally as well. Mm -hmm. And looking yeah. at the ways, some cases where we've moved some manufacturing already over to Europe mm -hmm. and we already are manufacturing in China, so I think uh, we're being pretty proactive, but on a um, very reasonable sort of growth path for um, growth internationally as well. The United States only represents about 20% of the world economy, and yet at Vermeer, we sell about 80% of our volume into the United States. So we're, we're selling 80% of our volume to 20% of the world's economy. So as Mary said, um, international growth has been a priority for us for years and continues to be a really nice opportunity for us. And I really believe that was the real interest of our father too, mm -hmm. because uh, I think we started shipping internationally in 1959. And I think he was really an initiator of thinking globally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then from just, the, from, we've talked about this from the family side, but um, as an ownership council group, we read, we read a book this past year called uh, Being a Century Club Company. And at the shareholder meeting we had last week, we talked about it a little bit more with the idea, hoping that all shareholders read the book. But you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's five main Premises. qualities or, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and we're there. I mean, we've got a lot of them. So I think it's just having all of us get excited about rallying around that. But I think, yeah, to the point, all of our shareholders, especially the third and fourth who will mm -hmm. hopefully be here when we hit 100 years, there's a, there's a focus on really driving us to get to that level. And again, it's getting our fourth generation excited. Very good. Very, very much appreciate you doing this. This was a, something I was really looking forward to and personally proud to have done this one with you. So thank you. Thank you Great. very much. Well, thank you. Happy thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for joining yeah. Good work, team. And now for a special bonus for you, we're going to talk about the devastating tornado that hit Vermeer without warning on July 19th, 2018. 
when the place was full of hundreds of guests for the company's 70th anniversary celebration. In just a few minutes, that tornado took out 30% of the company's manufacturing space. We're gonna hear how, once the individuals were all accounted for, how the team immediately went into problem-solving mode to get it back going and get their people back employed. I would like to briefly talk about the tornado mm -hmm. and what I, th I think has got to be a near record accomplishment of getting the plant back up, up to going. So if we, we could talk about that Jason, for a little, what, what happened and how you got through that. Absolutely. Hope I never have to go through it again, but it's uh, been absolutely remarkable, the performance of the business since the tornado. So it occurred on July 19 and we had 400 customers and dealers here celebrating our 70th anniversary. And in fact, I was right in this building. I was in the founder's house in the garage talking with uh, customers and dealers about my grandparents, outdoor hobbies, etc. when um, we were told that there was a tornado warning. At first they said, hey, we're just gonna see what happens with it. And then just a few minutes later, they said, we're gonna bring everyone back and into the tornado shelters. And uh, I was convinced for 45 minutes that the tornado was gonna miss us to the north. And uh, I assumed that the uh, tornado shelters in the Global Pavilion would be fairly crowded because we had so many people here, um, but yet sufficient, which proved to be the case. We had um, sufficient shelter space, not only for our team members, but those hundreds of customers and dealers that were here as well. So I went back to the Plant One corporate um, tornado shelter and I was in there and um, the, the tornado struck and um, came from the north and uh, completely, as you can, you could see the path of it very clearly. It was on its way down and took out a bunch of oak trees to the farm north of Vermeer and was on the way down and uh, completely demolished what's called our eco center and then touched down fully between plants five and plant six, which are, were completely destroyed and are now demolished and then was on the way up and basically spun 400 vehicles. It was 250. On top of each other, like they were matchbox cars in a bucket that someone had just spilled on the ground. So I was in the tornado shelter in plant one and uh, we did not feel the pressure like lots of other people did in their ears. In uh, our tornado shelter, the, the lights flickered twice between the main lights and the backup lights. And we kind of looked at each other like maybe something happened and uh, I was standing next to the security person and her radio started um, becoming very active with other security people talking about the roof is off, windows are out, people are hurt. Right about that same time, we got the all clear and came out of the tornado shelter and my first two visual memories, one was as I looked to the west, the sky was blue. So the tornado was a very localized event that came from the north and you know cut a gash through the middle of the mile from north to south started driving along the back and of of the mile because i was already seeing the other thing that i noticed was that i was already seeing lots of emergency vehicles arriving so police cars ambulances fire trucks amazing how quickly our emergency responders were here so i decided to go along the back of the vermeer mile and assess the damage and see what i started to see and uh, I will never forget what I saw 
on that first drive along the back of the mile to see the eco center completely destroyed. It was a pile of rubble. The north walls of plants five and six were caved in. I could see into the plants and I could see geysers of water going off in each of the plants as you know, water infrastructure had been ruptured. Got over to the pavilion, which is the other side of the Vermeer Mile, and then went to the guard shack, which we were thinking we would set up as our command center. And emergency responders said they would like that as their command center. So went back to the pavilion, found out the water didn't work and the lights didn't work. And then we came back to plant one and set up a conference room as our initial command center, where the initial priorities were determining what injuries there were and worse, could there have been any fatalities, which thankfully the greatest blessing is that there were no fatalities, but at the time we didn't know that. Already within hours, we were putting out our first communication to our team members and within hours we were already doing press briefings and you know we were very happy to be able to you know utilize the media who did a tremendous job of uh, of helping to get our message out as well um, the combination of of us communicating directly to our team members and the more broad communication that the media provided was extremely important to inform our team members of what was going on. And that evening we were already able to say that we were very confident that we had no serious injuries, that our minor injuries had already been treated and released, and that we had no fatalities. And the next morning we came back with our operations leadership team and we had three priorities that we wanted to assess. We wanted to determine if there were any of our facilities that we could have back in production as of Monday morning. That, this was on a Friday morning. We wanted to know whether there were some of our facilities that were damaged but could be repaired, and then what facilities were maybe completely destroyed, and what would we do with those product lines. And that very first day, we actually accomplished all of that, which to this day, I, I am, blown away by the fact that we were able to do that in that first day. We determined in the morning that on Monday morning we would bring two-thirds of our team, it ended up being two-thirds of our team, back to work because we determined that we could get plants one through three and the part center back up and going on Monday and in fact we ended up bringing people in for the part center mm -hmm. that very first day on Friday. Mm -hmm. and. Um, and so that included the, the, the team members that were based in those facilities, plus the additional team members that we brought back for the cleanup effort and the moving effort and the effort of moving lines. We brought two thirds of our team back that very next Monday. And then that same day we determined that plants four and seven were damaged but could be repaired. And we already started developing our plans for how we were gonna repair those facilities and the front offices in front of plant six and plant seven, that those could be repaired. And in fact, those two front offices and plants uh, four and seven are now completely repaired from the tornado damage. And then the final thing that they, the operations team figured out that very first day in the afternoon is they figured out what space we could free up in plants one through three, four and seven, so that we could move the product lines from plant five and six to our other facilities. So we decided to move our engineering prototype efforts offsite. We moved our tooling efforts offsite. Um, we moved a lot of storage offsite. And by doing that over the next month and a half, we were able to relocate all of our production lines from plants five and six to our other locations. So by the time it was all said and done, 
we got all of our team back to work within 30 days and we recovered all of our production within 45 days and by the time our fiscal year was finished we we lost very very few sales we probably lost a few sales for those products that were um, relocated from plans five and six but for the most part we have heard from our dealers and from our customers that that we were able to recover our production to a point that for a lot of our customers and a lot of our dealers they they if they hadn't heard about the tornado, they would not have known it happened based on Vermeer's performance. So um, just an incredible, incredible story. Likely will be the thing I'm most proud of in my entire career at Vermeer by the time it's all said and done that we were able to do that. I think you'll be remembered for that. I've heard the story from Mark that there was an early meeting with the leadership team and it was said we will be fully operational in 45 days and 20 will be back. That, that was the goal. So, you know, uh, that very first night at, at the press briefing, um, I said that, you know, we were going to rebuild and we were going to come back better and stronger than ever before. And so early that next day, when we had those three goals, um, you know, I, I put those three goals in the context of, you know, frankly, it's, it's um, skilled workforce is very difficult to find. So the last thing we wanted was for our people to be out of work for an extended period of time mm -hmm. and go find jobs someplace mm -hmm. else. So we were strongly driven by the desire to get our people back to work as quickly as possible so that they didn't go look for jobs other mm -hmm. places. That was a major drive. And then also the, um, our business, the, the business segments that we serve are very strong right now. And so we didn't want to miss out on business that would go to our competitors and therefore, you know, that relationship would start with, with our competitors. So we were very driven by the desire to get our people back to work and not lose mm -hmm. the incredible business momentum that we have out there. So we set a goal just based on those two factors of wanting to have our people back to work and recover our production within a month and a half. We felt that that was achievable barely and yet at the same time the, the kind of timeline we needed so that we wouldn't have attrition from the tornado and that we wouldn't lose sales from the tornado and we exceeded the goal with regards to getting the people back to work we mm -hmm. got that done in two-thirds of the goal mm -hmm. in 30 days and we did recover our production within 45 days so we did it and um, just recently we had our dealer year-end meeting and lots and lots of dealers said to me that if I didn't know about the tornado, just from the perspective of customer perspective and my own inventory and my own sales, I wouldn't even know you guys got hit by a tornado. That's how effective we were at recovering. And to be honest with you, Arlene, mentality yep, really for helped. Sure. It was like a two-week, mile-long Kaizen. Yep. Um, a lot of leaders took on a, a new role for those two weeks, three weeks. Mark Cooper, who's head of our, our quality initiative, he was in charge with a small team of finding space to go bring these prototyping machines and central receiving where we needed space. I mean, he went and looked at dozens and dozens of places where, where could we move things. One of our uh, legal folks was in charge of figuring out how to return those cars to everybody that had been you know, piled up on top of each other, how to organize that, how to communicate it. Um, our communication team and our HR team, I think, were splendid engineering all of industrial engineering was committed to helping get lines moved 
for the first month. It was like a all hands on deck, working, small groups working and reporting back a couple times a day on what do you need, where are the barriers, um, how can we help. Since we didn't lose any lives, we'd have to say it was just one of some of our proudest moments. How people dug in, worked together, did phenomenal things in a short amount of time. You must have learned something about the character and caliber of your people right. through that process. Right. For sure. I mean, right away that very first evening when I said, we're certainly going to rebuild better and stronger than ever, one of our creative team members immediately came up with the graphic and the motto, Vermeer Strong, which just you know became our rallying cry right mm -hmm. off the bat. Mm -hmm. And you can still see Vermeer Strong you know, branding up and down the mile. It is amazing. I, you know, I'll always be amazed by the tenacity and the resolve of the Vermeer team to come back more thoroughly and more quickly than what any external person would think would be possible. And that's what we were able to do just because of that Vermeer strong, tenacious commitment to coming back. Outstanding story and accomplishment. Team element, just, it's, it's awe-inspiring. We, we do think Gary would have been proud. I think he himself would have been amazed at how quickly we could move, we yep. could retrieve, we could go through, we could check two, th two three thousand jigs, you know, make the quality checks, make the changes. Some things were not gonna be repaired, but 90% of things could be repaired. Yep. He's been gone about 10 years. 10 years. So if you had had the ability to, to talk with him after the 45 days, what, what would he have, have said about what happened here? I really think he would have said, well done. Uh -huh. You know, he wasn't one to give a lot of compliments. Yeah, I just think he would uh, have been very proud of the family and all the people at Vermeer that were involved. My grandfather was very metric driven. When I would fish with him, you know, we would talk about how quickly we got to our limit and, and how many fish we would catch per hour and those type of things. And so I think my grandfather, if he could have observed our entire recovery from the tornado, he would have just been amazed by those daily and weekly metrics that we were tracking. We had two thirds of our people back the very first Monday. The, the next week we brought plant four back online and were over 80% of our team back. Mm -hmm. Every day we were bringing a higher and higher percentage back until a month after the tornado, we had brought everybody back. And every week we were talking about, this week we have uh, moved the small and medium navigator line to plant seven and they're starting to ramp up. We're moving the small tractor line to plant one. We're moving the large tractor line to plant three. We're clearing out the high bay and we're moving the horizontal grind, grinder line into that location. And, and just, you know, all of those milestones, which were victories for us every day, to turn the, to have the first machine come off one of our assembly lines already the Monday after the tornado. And we took a picture of that and we sent it out to our dealers and said, we're already back up producing machines. I think my grandfather would have seen all those milestones and like Bob said, would have been extremely proud to, to see that happen. Yeah, the other thing I always noticed, he always was, we talked about inquisitive, but he always wanted to know strategy. So mm -hmm. my story, I, I played uh, basketball through high school and college. And after a game, he'd always want to know why we call a play. So I could see him asking, why'd you move it there? Why'd you make How this decision? That? What was, yeah, right. what, what went into that strategy? Maybe back to the no. metric and the data, but um, he always kind of asked those whys. You know? So he, if he was sitting back watching it, it'd be, well, why'd you put that one in that plant? Or why'd you move this to here? And no. 
I think that would have intrigued him to, yeah. to understand kind of the, the strategy behind it all. Thanks to Joe Kinsley for his talent in stringing both of these segments for you today and for a full year's work of doing this every other week. I would not have wanted to do this project without you, Joe, so thank you, sir. And thanks to Osmondson Manufacturing, www.osmondson.com, so for supporting our time, travel, and production for these recordings over the last six months. It's true, this is the last official episode in the series, although I've heard a little bit of water cooler talk that there might be one more in the hopper. But at any rate, I'm getting the cue right now to give a final sign out. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and learned something more about our industry's fine heritage along the way. So that's a farewell for me, Mike Lesseter of Farm Equipment and Lesseter Media, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs.